Welcome to Jury Duty. I'm your host, Chris Terracone. This season of Jury Duty explores the trial of Michael Barrison, who is charged with the attempted murders of Lauren Kanarek and Robert Goodwin in Long Valley, New Jersey. Kanarek was struck in the chest by two bullets from Barrison's weapon, and as it was undisputed that Barrison fired those shots, his legal team argued that he was not guilty because he was legally insane at the time of the shooting, and in the alternative because he fired those shots in self-defense. In our last episode, we examined the testimonies of several more equestrian associates of the defendant, as well as an insurance adjuster who handled a flooding damage claim made by the defendant. On today's installment, we look at the testimony of another equestrian enthusiast, and we also begin our examination of the testimony of the key defense expert witnesses who offer evidence supporting the claim that the defendant is not guilty by reason of insanity. That's all coming up right after the break. It is the morning of April 6th, 2022, day 8 of the Barrisone trial. Judge Stephen Taylor invites the defense to call their first witness of the day, and Chris Dininger requests that Boyd Martin take the stand. Mr. Martin has graying hair that is cropped short on the sides and is thick and tousled on top. He wears a blue blazer, a cross-striped shirt, and a blue patterned tie. Defense attorney Dininger handles the direct examination, as he has for many of the defendant's equestrian associates, and begins his questioning by asking the witness about his place of residence and other biographical information. Good morning, uh, Mr. Martin. Where do you live? I live in uh, Crockenville, Pennsylvania. Are you a U.S. citizen? I am. What do you do for a living? My wife and myself train uh, horses. My wife's a dressage rider. I'm a three-day event rider. Uh, in our sport, three-day eventing uh, has dressage, show jumping, and cross-country. It's an uh, Olympic sport. Is um, Philip Dutton uh, also in that sport? Yes, he is. Okay. And do you compete nationally in the United States? Yes, uh, and uh, actually internationally representing America. In what competitions have you represented America in international competitions? I've gone to three Olympic Games, I think four World Equestrian Games, and I think two Pan American Games. Do you know Michael Barrison? Yes. How did you first come to know him? Michael in the equestrian world is a legend. He's a very, very well-known, uh, famous dressage trainer. I met him, I believe, in uh, 2010. He's so good that he started actually training and coaching me and helping me develop my riding in uh, dressage to a higher level. Did he train you as well as your horse? Yeah, I mean, he's a, a remarkable guy. He's obviously a, one of the best riders in this country, or, or if not the world. And I sort of went to him for improvement of my own riding and the improvement of horses. He's a, a brilliant horse trainer, great mentor, coach, competitor, also a guy that's been there and done it that sort of helped helped me in my career and point me in the right direction. So approximately how many years of experience do you have observing Michael Barris on interact with horses? Well, since being in this country, probably uh, watching him for a couple of years before I started training with him, but uh, closely sort of in a 10-year period. Have you, in that time period, ever seen Michael Barrison abuse an animal? Absolutely not. Uh, Michael uh, is a fantastic horseman. Uh, to get the, the best out of the horses, the thing I learned with Michael is sort of trust and confidence and... You know, he's a, a passionate trainer and, you know, really pointed me in the direction of sort of working with the animal without force. 
did there come a time when your relationship with Michael evolved beyond him being a coach and mentor into something else? Yeah, I mean, I've, I'm attracted to Michael just because of his uh, character and his personality. And I think over time, you know, you start off as coach and student and then uh, you, you, you somewhat develop a friendship. You know, I love the guy. He was fun to be around. He was a great teacher. We had the same love for horses, the same sort of goals and drive for competition. Yeah, I'd have to say that we, we became good friends. Did he assist you at all in an appearance at the London Olympics in 2012? Yeah, Michael was was remarkable. He actually flew to England and, and trained and coached me at no, no cost. And he was instrumental on, on helping me get to my first Olympic Games. And, you know, it was something I'll always remember of how he sort of dropped everything here in America and came to England and, and worked with me to prepare for the Olympics. Were you at the Rio Olympics in 2016? Yes. Did Michael assist you in connection with that competition? Yeah, he was um, coaching some of the pure dressage uh, riders at that contest, but he definitely was an influence uh, to me at that point there. I mean, when you go to the Olympic Games, you you know, there's long build-up, there's weeks of where you're sort of in a training camp, and uh, yeah, definitely Michael was there and, um, and assisted. So did you develop a friendship with him? Yes. Uh, did you ever socialize with him outside of the context of horses? Yes. Uh, tell us about that. Um, like when you go to the, you know, these championship events, you often, you know, training a horse takes about an hour and uh, you're there and uh, you hung out together, you obviously had dinner together. My wife and myself owned a, a dressage horse that we brought over from Australia and we believed Michael was so good at improving horses. We actually sent this horse to his training facility in New Jersey and went up and watched Michael train the horse and enjoyed dinner with him afterwards. And, uh, you know, he was, uh, you see him at competitions as well. I don't know, like he's one of those people you're drawn to at the show, like he's larger than life and uh, just fun to be around. Based upon your interactions with him professionally and socially, did you develop uh, any sort of impression as to his truthfulness as a person. Yeah, I mean, he is, a, to me, a very honourable and truthful person. I think to achieve what he's achieved in his career, you can't be a con. Like, it's so hard work. It's such a long road. Um, it's just thousands and thousands of hours of training and practice. And you can't get to where Michael's got to in his career by being a phony. And I'd say he's a, a very honourable character. He's uh, truthful. And all the dealings I had with him as a coach and student and him training our horses and seeing him socially, uh, he was a very truthful person. Have you ever co-owned horses with Michael? Uh, we had this one horse called Jeff the Chef that Michael trained and improved and we ended up selling the horse. And so uh, we owned the horse, but we I believe we uh, Michael got a commission on the sale. Do you have a barn facility in Pennsylvania? Yes, we have a, a farm in, in Cochranville, Pennsylvania. Was, was there ever a time where there was a a, a horrific fire at a facility you were associated with? Yeah, unfortunately in um, 2011, I was actually renting a 16-stall barn, come to America in 2007, and uh, it was a tragic event. It was, um, and there was an electrical fire that happened in the middle of the night from a, an electrical uh, product called a hay steamer, and uh, it was a disaster. It, um, this machine was a faulty machine and the, the machine caught on fire. The whole building burnt down. I believe six horses died. The whole building was destroyed. Uh, we managed to save a number of the horses, but it was, uh, yeah, it was a horrible, horrible event. 
as a horse owner, you had been in that barn and noticed that that hay steamer was somehow malfunctioning, would you have done something to address it? Hold on, hold on. Let me see that sidebar. After a brief sidebar conference, Chris Deininger moves on to another line of questioning. We mentioned that Michael was passionate in his work. Could you elaborate on that for the jury? To be an Olympic athlete as successful as Michael, you've got to have determination and drive and positivity. You know, he was larger than life, uh, a passionate guy. Uh, I don't know how much more to explain it, but he, he had a, a flamboyant personality. He loved so much what he did. I was magnetized to it a little bit. Like he, uh, when he's coaching, you could hear it in his voice or... You know, there was times where he'd wake up at three in the morning up here in New Jersey and drive to our farm and be there before I even woke up to train us. And, you know, he, he just loved horses. He loved seeing us succeed. And he's, he was just passionate about um, his coaching and everything he did. Throughout your association with Michael Barrison, did you ever witness him mistreating another person? Never, no. I mean, there's coaching any athlete, I think... Um, you know, in sports, there's times where your voice would get elevated or you might use a curse word. But, you know, I think it was definitely in my experiences is just because of how much he wanted you to improve. But there was never abusive or anything like that. Dininger indicates that he has no further questions for Mr. Martin. And prosecutor Christopher Shellhorn steps forward with two brief questions on cross-examination. Uh, Mr. Martin, you weren't at Mr. Barrison's farm on August 7th, 2019? No. And you're aware that he's on trial for attempted murder? Yes. No questions, Judge. Thank you. The defense next calls the most crucial witness to their case, psychiatrist Dr. Stephen Simring. Simring is in his 70s. His head is shaved. He sports dark-framed wire-rimmed glasses and wears a gray suit, a white dress shirt, and a red and gold striped tie. Edward Belenkis takes over the questioning for the defense and begins by eliciting biographical information from Dr. Simring. Where do you uh, reside currently, doctor? Reside in Tanafly, New Jersey. And uh, what do you do for a living? I'm a psychiatrist. Can you give us a little bit of background with regards to your education? Yeah, psychiatry is a specialty of medicine. Uh, I went to college at Columbia. I went to medical school at NYU. I did my uh, general surgery residency at Bellevue Hospital. And then I did a psychiatric residency at Columbia Presbyterian, New York State Psychiatric Institute. After that, I was in the U.S. Army Medical Corps for three years. And what did you do in the U.S. Army? I treated psychiatric patients who were uh, military, usually Vietnam. Uh, people coming back and forth from Vietnam. I uh, returned then to New Jersey. I became the medical director of Mount Carmel Guild Community Mental Health Center, which is part of Catholic Charities. I did that for about three years, and then I joined what was then called New Jersey Medical School, now known as Rutgers. And for the next, gee, almost 30 years, I was director of medical student education at New Jersey Medical School in Newark. Um, at times, I was vice chair of the department I ran the residency training program, but I was usually in charge of medical student education. After that, I returned to Columbia, where I still am, and I directed the forensic or legal psychiatry training program at Columbia. Throughout all this time, I've been in private practice of psychiatry, where I've seen uh, individual patients for therapy, and I've also done forensic or legal evaluations. In, in approximately uh, 
How many patients have you seen and evaluated over your career? I've seen thousands of cases. How long have you uh, been uh, in psychiatry? Well, I, I finished my residency in psychiatry in 1970. Uh, then I went to the Army. And then in 1973, I received board certification. So I'm a board certified psychiatrist. Can you explain to the ladies and gentlemen of the jury what board certified uh, means? Well, psychiatry is a specialty of medicine, like surgery or radiology. In order to do that, you need to graduate from medical school and finish an approved residency. After that, there's an examination to measure your qualification. And uh, I passed that examination in 1973. It became board certified. Oddly enough, uh, it's lifetime certification. Nowadays, people have to do it every 10 years to take recertification. However, I didn't get away with it because in 2014, uh, or no, 1994, they developed a subspecialty in forensic or legal psychiatry, and I passed that board, and that board is renewable every 10 years. So board certification means that after completing all the requirements, an established board of experts will evaluate your, your uh, capability and competency. Now, do you have any, uh, have you been appointed to any university in the board? Well, yes. I mean, when I was at New Jersey Medical School, I sat on many, many of the committees. I was there for many, many years, and my work mainly involved students. Um, at Columbia, the same thing. I was involved with residents and the training of residents. As part of my Columbia job, I also train residents at Cornell. Cornell has a partnership with Columbia through New York Presbyterian Hospital. So I spent much of my life in academic medicine, and at the same time, I've seen private patients throughout this whole time. Did you have any hospital appointments? Yes, I have a hospital appointment. Well, for many years, I was appointed to university hospitals at, in Newark, uh, which is part of UNBNJ, or New Jersey Med School, again, now called Rutgers. They keep changing the names. Um, since 2005, when I returned to Columbia, I received an appointment at Columbia Presbyterian Hospital, known as New York Presbyterian Columbia. And then I received an appointment at New York Presbyterian Weill Cornell. That's the East Side Hospital. They have a partnership in New York Presbyterian Hospital. So I have two hospital appointments. Uh, have you received any uh, awards or honors with regards to your work in psychiatry? Most of the awards I've received over the years have been teaching awards. How about any committee assignments? Well, that's part of academia as you serve on committees. Everybody serves on committees, so you don't get much credit for it, but part of the duties in academia is serving on committees. Uh, do you have any specific uh, uh, research interests that you've uh, pursued? Medical student education. Have you written any articles? written a few, not that many over the years. They're listed in my CV. Offered any books? Uh, yeah, I've written a few books. Uh, they're more in, in the field of populist psychiatry, more than uh, academic psychiatry. For example, I co-authored the book uh, Making Marriage Work for Dummies, of all things. It's part of the Dummies series. I uh, wrote the Compatibility Quotient, co-authored that. This has to do with marriage. I wrote a book with now the current dean of uh, New Jersey Medical School, Robert Johnson, a book called The Race Trap. And this really has to do, back 20 years ago, about black-white race relations. He's African-American, so we had it from the point of view of a black and a white doctor. Uh, we're going to revise that book because race relations have so totally changed in the United States. I've written a few other books. Doctor, have you ever been qualified as an expert in a court of law? I have many times. 
And when you say many times, approximately how many times? Probably hundreds of times. Most of the time I've been qualified in the state of New Jersey. I should have mentioned I'm licensed in New Jersey and New York. I have an inactive license in California. So that in New Jersey and New York, I practice mainly in New Jersey, occasionally in New York. And of course, my appointment at Columbia and Cornell is in New York. I'm sorry, I forgot your question. Thank you. Have you ever uh, uh, testified as an expert on behalf of the state? Oh, yeah. The prosecutor. Thank you. I was telling you about testifying. Most of my testimony has been in Superior Court in the state of New Jersey. I've occasionally testified in Supreme Court in New York, which is the equivalent of Superior Court. They have a nutty kind of way of naming courts there. So their Supreme Court is like our Superior Court. I've testified in federal court mainly in the state of New Jersey, occasionally in New York. That's called the U.S. District Court. I've testified at arbitration hearings as well. I've testified occasionally out of state in, in psychiatry. So I've been retained often by, uh, in, I do civil and criminal cases. In criminal cases, I've been retained by defense lawyers like you, by the prosecutor. I've worked for Mr. Shelhorn's office and I've worked for many of the prosecutor's offices in the state of New Jersey. I've been retained or appointed by judges to do specific tasks. So I've been retained by people from lawyers and judges from all sides. And you indicated that uh, you've been retained by the Morris County Prosecutor's Office in the past? Oh, I have, yes. On, on one or more occasions? On, on, you know, comes and goes. I, I've testified in most of the counties in the state I've been retained by many of the prosecutor's offices, public defender's offices, and private attorneys. In Morris County, I did a lot of cases when Michael Murphy was the county prosecutor at that time. Where? Here in Morris. Here in Morris. Uh, and uh, Judge Mur uh, Michael Murphy was the prosecutor at that time. After him, I started doing fewer cases here, more cases in Bergen and Essex. But over the years, I've done Morris County cases. Now, Judge, at this point, I'll move Dr. Simmering as an expert in psychiatry. Forensic psychiatry. Without objection from the prosecution, Judge Stephen Taylor qualifies Dr. Simmering as an expert in forensic psychiatry and invites Edward Belinkus to resume his questioning. Can you explain to the jury what forensic psychiatry is? Well, forensic psychiatry is a subspecialty of psychiatry, just as psychiatry is a subspecialty of medicine. It's a discipline, and I, I have been qualified as an expert in psychiatry with a subspecialty in forensic psychiatry. Forensic psychiatry is the application of the specialty of psychiatry to specifically to legal issues, and legal issues come in a lot of varieties. Many of them are civil cases where one person is suing another and brings up a, a psychiatric issue. A simple example of that may be a will contest where the state of mind of the testator or the will maker is brought into, into a question. Some of these cases have to do with claims of damages, medical malpractice, or sexual harassment, or things like that. Then there are criminal cases such as this one. And in a criminal case, uh, I will render opinions as to an individual's state of mind, an individual's dangerousness from a psychiatric point of view, an individual's competency or fitness to stand trial, and other uh, factors dealing with an individual's state of mind as it applies to the criminal charges. And as I've testified, I've been retained by defense prosecution and the court to render these opinions. So what's the difference between a psychiatrist and a psychologist. The training is very different. For the purpose of testifying, psychologists can do very much what I do. 
in telling the jury, giving the jury expert opinions about a person's state of mind. However, the training is very, very different. Psychiatry is a specialty of medicine. You can't go into psychiatry unless you go to medical school. You know, the old joke was the psychiatrist is a doctor who doesn't like to see blood. And, you know, that's a little bit funny, but it is a specialty as surgery, internal medicine, gynecology, any other specialty. Psychology is an academic uh, study, uh, and instead of getting an MD degree and specializing as you do in psychiatry, you will aim toward a PhD degree or a PSYD, PsyD degree, and you get an academic degree, and then you take courses, and then you become a specialist in psychiatric issues. So there, although the training is very different, they often converge in two places. One place is that psychiatrists and psychologists both often provide therapy. So both can be qualified to be psychiatric therapists. Second thing is both psychiatrists and psychologists can do evaluations. I think the one place in which psychiatry has an advantage in doing evaluations is in questions of medication, where medication is concerned, because part of my training is training in the use and prescription of medications. The one place where psychology has an advantage is in testing, pen and paper psychological testing, where they have an advantage. Doctor, were you uh, retained to evaluate Michael Barrison's uh, state of mind at the time of this incident? I was. I was asked to see Mr. Barrison shortly uh, after, really within a month of the incident, which occurred in early August 2019. Is there any significance as to when you see a particular individual as far as the closeness to the event with regards to rendering an opinion? Well, ideally, you want to do an evaluation as close to the event as possible uh, because it's fresh and everything is fresh. Um, the ideal circumstance is getting a, a call from an attorney to see his client in jail uh, or really in some kind of custody uh, or in the office. It would be great to see somebody shortly afterwards. That often doesn't happen. Very often, because of the way the court system works, I'm asked to see somebody months or even years after an event, and then I have to reconstruct what had happened. That's certainly possible, but it makes it more difficult. Here, in this case, I was asked to see Mr. Barrison the first time on September 6, 2019, which is just a tiny bit more than a month after the incident. Okay, and uh, on that day, you met with Michael Barrison, correct? I did. And that was in person, correct? Yes, it was. That was just before the pan. Well, it was just before the pandemic. Yes. After the pandemic, did you have an occasion to meet with him on other occasions? I met with Mr. Barrison four more times throughout the year 2020, uh, all of which were done by Zoom. By that time, much of my evaluations were being done by Zoom, like most other mental health professionals. Right. Did you interview anyone else other than Michael Barrison to? Uh, formulate your uh, opinion in this matter? Yes, I would had phone, telephone interviews. At first, I read all the records, statements made by many, many people, including Michael Barrison's girlfriend, Mary Haskins Clark. I've read uh, statements by the uh, victim in this case, her boyfriend, people involved in her life. I spoke by phone specifically to two people. One is Stephen Tarshish, who is Mr. Barrison's long-term lawyer, and he was involved in trying unsuccessfully to put a stop to what was going on between Mr. Barrison and Ms. Kanarek. If I can uh, stop you for a second, Doc, 
why did you contact Stephen Tarshish, Michael Barrasso's attorney, to well, talk to him? This is a complicated case, as I'm sure the jury knows, but one of the issues was that as time went by, Mr. Barrisone was trying everything within his power to stop the relationship between him and Canarac and Goodwin. In other words, he wanted them off his property and he wanted them to leave. They didn't want to leave. That's the simple part of it. So he wanted them to leave. They were squatting. They didn't want to leave. They claimed they had a right to be there. So Mr. Barrisone tried everything in his power to get them to leave. And among other things, he contacted the Washington Township Police on at least four occasions, and probably more than that, and asked for the help. Hold on a second. Can I see counsel at sidebar, please? After a brief sidebar conference, Judge Taylor guides Edward Belenkis away from eliciting hearsay evidence from the witness. Is that testimony was not exactly responsive, so please ask another question. And I'm, I'm, I'm not sure we have to get into why he spoke to someone, because that probably led the doctor to testify as he did so. He certainly indicated he, who he spoke to, that's fine, but why he did it, information he received from those people is not something he should testify to now. Before he resumes his questioning, Edward Belenkis gives Dr. Simring a copy of a report that he prepared regarding his examination of the defendant. You indicated you spoke to uh, the attorney, Stephen Parkett. Did you speak to anyone else with regards to Michael Barrison? that you used or relied on as far as your evaluation? Yes, I spoke to his long-term therapist who has seen him in therapy for years. It's Ms. Ricardo. I'm looking at her first name. I'm blocking on that. I'm going to refer you to the first page of the report, second paragraph. Ask you to review that. Oh, here we go. Yeah, thank you. Uh, Ann Ricardo. Sorry. I spoke to Ann Picardo. Uh, Mr. Barrisone had been seeing Ann Picardo for therapy off and on for many years. So with Mr. Barrisone's permission, I spoke to Ms. Picardo to gather her thoughts about his background. And, and did you receive information from Picardo that you relied on with regards to the formulation of your opinion? I did. And, and can you tell the jury what information she provided you uh, that you relied on as far as your evaluation here. Well, I'm not sure how much detail you want me to go into. Whatever detail that you relied on and you believe is necessary to explain why you rendered the opinion that you did. Okay. So I was in the past personal history. What I learned from her is that uh, he came from a family which was emotionally and physically abusive. That as a boy growing up, uh, his mother according to her, was very selfish and very abusive to him. His mother, by the way, passed away in 2014. His father died in 2019, just after his, his arrest. Ms. Picardo remembered that in terms of the history that uh, one of the maternal grandparents suffered from depression, and she believed that one of the grandparents required shock treatment, electroconvulsive therapy. And why is that re relevant? Well, depression runs in families, and one of my uh, diagnoses, uh, of my two diagnoses, one of them is persistent depressive disorder or, or chronic depression. And so that was relevant with regards to your diagnosis regarding the depressive uh, diagnosis? That's correct. Just one more piece of evidence. People with depression often have depressions in the family. Some do not. Many do. Right. And, and what else? 
if anything, uh, rely on she it. told me, and this is even more important, yeah. Ms. Picardo said that she had treated Mr. Barrison on and off for 20 years, uh, never consistently, but on and off with depression and anxiety. And he would make appointments with her and see her when he felt he needed care. She described him to me as, this is a direct quote, very troubled. She thought he was at a considerable risk for suicide. And she believed that even before the current events. Uh, he expressed to her, after he spoke to her, after the incident, that he had lost everything. Um, she also noted that throughout the years, in addition to being depressed, he appeared to be paranoid, by which she meant unduly suspicious of the motives of others. And how is that information relevant to your diagnosis? Well, my diagnosis is based on my review of the records, which are extensive, my review of the medical records, the incident reports, my five interviews with Mr. Barrison, and also other information that comes through, such as medical records and impressions from other treating professionals. All that helps me to formulate a diagnosis. Now, uh, can you set forth uh, uh, generally what you reviewed uh, that you relied on that formed your uh, uh, opinion? Yes, the material is extensive, as the jury can see from this pile of papers on my desk that's more than eight inches thick. But uh, just to summarize it, uh, I, I had, and I'm reading now from my report where I summarized everything, the legal documents, uh, Washington Township investigation reports, which had to do with the current incident and um, visits that Washington Township made to Mr. Barrison before the incident, dealing with difficulties he was having with Ms. Canarac and Ms. Goodwin. Um, Doctor, did you review... Uh uh, the reports with regards to Michael Barrison's 911 calls to Washington County. I did. There were several. There were at least four 911 calls in which, short in the days before the shooting incident, in which Mr. Barrison was increasingly uh, panicky and increasingly desperate to get help for a situation which had been spinning out of control. And he put these in the form of 911 calls. Officers responded to the scene but didn't do very much. And what, if any, impact did that have on Michael Barrison's state of mind? Mr. Belinkus, can I see you for a minute? With Judge Taylor calling for a sidebar conference, we bring to a close this episode of Jury Duty, the trial of Michael Barrison. Join us on our next installment as we pick up after the sidebar and continue our look at the direct examination of defense expert psychiatrist Stephen Simring. If you would like to listen to these episodes early and ad-free, head over to our Jury Duty Crime Story Patreon page. You can find more information about this trial on our Jury Duty Crime Story Patreon page or at crimestory.com. Jury Duty is created and produced by Carrie Antholis. It was co-produced and edited by yours truly, Chris Terracon. Music for this episode was provided by Strike Audio, and the trial audio is courtesy of Law & Crime Networks. Thank you for joining us. We hope you'll come back for the next episode of Jury Duty, The Trial of Michael Barrison. <laughs>